I suppose because it's that time of the year, I'm asked often these days whether I went or I was going to COP26, the climate change conference, which is taking place in Glasgow as I tape this episode 54 of The Angry Clean Energy Guy. I would answer no, I'm not going, and I have no plans to go, or I didn't go, and then I would explain why. So the very first COP, or the very first climate change annual gathering, took place in Bonn in Germany in 1995, which is 26 years ago. And if you fast forward to today, it's very clear that 26 climate change conferences later, emissions are still rising. We're polluting more than ever. And so the results speak for themselves. I did go to several COPs. My first one was in 2007. That was COP 13 in Bali, Indonesia. Then I went to COP 19 in Warsaw, Poland, and to COP 21 in Paris, France. And what happens at these COPs is always the same. Pretty much every single country in the world is represented, and you have circles of action at each event. So in the inner sanctum are government officials that are negotiating complicated texts that deal with very esoteric but important issues that aren't generally in the public domain. Then around that inner sanctum, you have civil society, which is trying to communicate what citizens actually think and want from these climate negotiations. And then you have a circle around that of corporate sponsors, think tanks, and a very, very big number of representatives of polluting industries, including oil, gas, and coal, that are trying to influence the outcomes. And by and large, the action, or rather the real action, takes place at the very end of a climate change conference, when the final text for that conference is being agreed. Today is 12 November, it's a Friday. The COP in Glasgow is supposed to end. However, it won't. It always or almost always extends over the weekend. And then, lo and behold, there is a result. Governments go off and trumpet that result almost always as a success while emissions keep rising. Welcome to episode 54 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Assad Razouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. The global legal construct around climate change was born decades ago in 1992. That's when something called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was negotiated 
at the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. That's more commonly known as the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. So 29 years ago, pretty much all the countries in the world agreed that we were interfering with the Earth's climate because we fueled industrialization with oil, gas, and coal. And by burning these or releasing them from under the crust of the Earth, we pumped enormous amounts of climate warming gases into the atmosphere. So as I said, all the way back in 1992, pretty much the entire world agreed that these were facts. They also agreed that these gases interfered with our natural climate cycles, therefore threatening what you already see today, more floods, droughts, more extreme heat than we can handle. We also knew all the way back then that there was increased risks of the Arctic and the Antarctic ice melting, of the Himalayas collapsing, of sea levels rising, and so on. Back in 1992, we did not know exactly when our impact on the climate would be everywhere for everyone to see. We did not know also exactly how this would play out, but we knew it was inevitable. And we knew all the way, almost 30 years ago, that this would lead to cities and countries being submerged, to others becoming uninhabitable, and yet more experiencing food and water shortages and many, many climate refugees on the move to more hospitable lands. And so we had to act. So the 1992 Earth Summit was historic. It was historic because it was the first time the entire world started debating the complex relationship between economic development on the one hand, and environmental sustainability. And in particular, at the time, to get back to some of the esoteric concepts that are negotiated extremely heavily at these climate talks, the world agreed that countries had what's called common but differentiated responsibilities in fighting global climate change. And these code words mean Rich countries, which are responsible for most of the pollution historically since industrialization and are better equipped to confront the issue, should take the lead in fighting climate change and should proportionately pay a far larger amount of the bill to fight climate change than poorer countries. So that's common but differentiated responsibilities. And the 1992 Earth Summit resulted in a beautiful document at a beautiful moment in time in a beautiful city, Rio de Janeiro, and everybody signed it. But once they left Rio, the wealthy nations of Europe, North America, and Australia promptly ignored it. And that was a preview of decades of climate change talks that followed. And so, if you've been to one or two or three COPs, 
you've pretty much graduated and you don't need to go to any of them because the outcome is always the same. And the dynamic at the climate change meetings is also always the same. But after 1992 Rio, rich countries in particular ignored the bit which clearly indicated that there was a difference in responsibility between themselves and poorer countries. As I said, rich countries were, and still are today, responsible for the overwhelming majority of the pollution sent up into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. And the U.S. president at the time, George H.W. Bush, gave a sneak preview of the difficulties the world will face in confronting climate change by declaring all the way back then that the American way of life is not negotiable. His statement, not mine. I'm not sure exactly what he meant, given that clean energy and a cleaner planet actually enhance livelihoods, but I suspect he meant at the time that the Americans wanted to keep ultra-large refrigerators fueled with coal plants together with gas-guzzling cars and energy-inefficient buildings and roads and trillions of supermarket plastic bags on top to throw away, yet somehow the Americans wanted to decrease their dependence on burning oil and gas, and they wanted to do all this stuff at the same time. They wanted to have their cake and eat it. And since then, since that moment, the entire effort guided by the United Nations, became largely symbolic. And words were exchanged and agreed every year at wonderful annual climate summits, heavily attended by pretty much all the governments in the world and invariably much more heavily attended if the location was exotic or particularly nice and if the weather was nicer. And then, Hardly anything at all happened, and it was Groundhog Day every year, and COP26 in Glasgow is not going to be any different. There were a couple of exceptions, and I can think of two in particular. The climate talks of 2005, when something called the Kyoto Protocol was ratified, and that was actually an achievement because it was the very first concrete attempt to move from symbols to action. And what the Kyoto Protocol did is it presented the private sector the opportunity to make money while saving the world at the same time, which is something that the private sector understands. So I probably say that the climate talks of 2005, and then of course the climate talks of 2015, 10 years later, or what's known as the Paris Agreement, these two were productive. Every single other climate summit was far more talk, far more words than any concrete action. And when you put the whole image together, what you get is emissions that never stopped rising. When the job actually is not only to bend the curve 
So not only to slow the rate of growth of emissions, but to actually reverse it so that they start declining. And I can tell you that no one's got a clue when that's going to happen. And certainly COP26 is not going to tell us anything that we did not know before. But let's talk about COP26 in a bit more detail. There was a pledge made in Glasgow to end deforestation. And it was made by 100 countries. It's difficult, however, to think of that as any accomplishment at all because the track record isn't very good. So in 2014, for example, seven years ago, there was something called the New York Declaration on Forests. Then in 2017, there was a United Nations strategic plan for forests. And today, at COP26, you have a deforestation pledge. So we've been making these pledges for a while, but net-net, primary rainforest destruction continues unabated every year, and it's even up 12% between 2019 and 2020. So it's really, really hard to think of that deforestation pledge as anything more than yet another beautiful moment in time after which nothing happens. Then also at COP26, there was another announcement by 100 countries to slash methane emissions. And that's something called the Global Methane Pledge. It's a pledge that asks countries to cut methane emissions by 30% over the course of this decade. And apparently, there's 105 countries that have signed up. Methane, as you may know, is a very potent greenhouse gas and the second biggest contributor to human-caused global warming after CO2. And methane emissions come principally from, again, our friends at the oil and gas industry, plus agriculture and waste, mostly. And these emissions delivered about 40% of our global warming to date. What that means is our human activities have contributed to warming Earth by, say, 1.3 degrees over pre-industrialization. Then if you take that 1.3 degrees Celsius and you split it, about 40% came from methane and 60% came from CO2. And because it's so potent, methane cuts can be hugely effective and have a big effect on near-term temperatures. They should therefore clearly be a vital part of what we do to limit warning. So let's see what happens and let's see principally how we're going to prevent leaks from fossil fuel infrastructure. Because one of the things about these methane emissions is that they occur every day under our nose from every pipeline transporting gas, for example, from every ship transporting LNG, etc. They are literally everywhere, and by and large, incredibly little is being done about them. 
And so personally, I'm not that optimistic. Short of what actually needs to be done, which is to stop exploring for new oil, gas, or coal, and soon to stop using most of our oil, gas, and coal, all these temporary measures like pledges to slash methane emissions are not actually dealing with the root cause of the problem, which is burning oil, gas, and coal. So there goes another alleged accomplishment of COP26. So what does that leave us with? There's been some announcement of countries going carbon neutral that were new. So for example, the biggest probably by impact is India announcing that it's going to go net zero by 2070. And yes, I know 2070 is 20 years after 2050, but frankly, it's still a big deal coming from India because 2050 in any case is way too late. So India will bring that date forward over time. It's a good start that they've actually made the announcement to start with. Russia announced it was going to go carbon neutral by 2060. Thailand said by 2050. And Vietnam went further and said it's going to go net zero by 2050. So that's all relatively good, but frankly has nothing to do actually with the climate conference itself. Because countries have been making these announcements outside these climate conferences. And what matters is not only making the announcement, but then having a plan to implement that net zero or carbon neutral pledge. And that's where efforts should be concentrated in terms of making sure that these announcements actually deliver a result. So what else happened at COP26? There was money put on the table to help South Africa decarbonize. That's a good thing, but that's just South Africa. And interestingly, I was actually more excited by something that had nothing to do with COP26 and happened outside it, which was a pretty major announcement by Ireland of a massive and credible 125 billion euro climate plan to cut its emissions 51% by 2030. And it was credible because they actually outlined how they were going to do it, including going 80% renewable by 2030, a national home retrofit scheme, deploying 1 million EVs on the road and 1,500 electric buses, 360 million euros a year for walking and cycling, and on top, phasing out coal and stopping oil and gas exploration and production. And that's massive and credible. And from Ireland, who is not as rich or wealthy as many other countries doing far, far less. And the list of the countries doing far, far less but are richer is actually quite long. Australia is probably the worst but I'm not sure that Canada or the United States are doing much better either. There is so much more all these countries can do, and Ireland is not only showing the way, but actually doing it, which is tremendously impressive. But it also has nothing to do with the climate talks. And so 
all that emphasis on Glasgow and COP26 is in fact misplaced because the real action is somewhere else. The real action has been playing out in the background for about three or four years now and culminated in 2020, so a year ago, by the International Energy Agency publishing its World Energy Outlook 2020, which came out and said that solar power now offers the cheapest electricity in history. We know what needs to be done to fight back against climate change. We've got to stop pumping oil, gas, and coal, and certainly start by stopping to explore for more of it. We also need to move our energy system to be powered 100% by renewables. And to make that even more effective, we have to electrify everything. Think of your car, for example, or your boiler at home. And finally, we need to stop and reverse deforestation. We know what to do, and all of it is hard. But the degree of difficulty goes down as money starts speaking with a louder voice. And that's why it's important that the International Energy Agency finally recognized that solar is the cheapest electricity in history. And solar is not alone. It's very closely followed by wind. And what that means is that what we need to focus on is making sure that roadblocks to the adoption of renewables in multiple countries around the world start falling faster because we've got to ramp up our renewables deployment by about three times compared to what we're doing today. And that's where the real action is. The faster we deploy renewable energy, the faster excuses not to are pushed back against, the more climate impact will be delivered. So action is in the real world, not that much at the climate talks that have been taking place annually since 1995 with emissions still increasing. So in every country, more resources have to be deployed to do at least three things. The first one is if that country is still responsible for deforestation is to make that stop and then to reverse it. The second thing is to fight against any new oil, gas, and coal and start rolling back existing oil, gas, and coal. And the third thing is to remove dismantle roadblocks to renewable energy deployment. 
Because now that solar and wind are the cheapest electricity in history, there is no financial excuse left. So what happens? There are other roadblocks that are thrown in. And they can be rules that are tweaked to support coal or gas, for example, or they can be the unenforcement of rules that would permit renewable energy to run faster, or it can be just plain and simple corruption, or it can be vested interests that are involved and that are powerful and need to be fought back. And so resources are far better deployed fighting back against deforestation on the ground in each country, pushing back against new oil, gas, and coal, and finally removing roadblocks to renewable energy because that's where the fight against climate change is going to be won. And on that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode 54 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Esad Rizouk. And if you like the show, please remember to talk about it, to review it, and have a great couple of weeks.